Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, now we come. Pray that you would shed light into our very minds and hearts so we can hear uh, this, the very word of God. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to receive and embrace it. And that it would be the very source, Father, of our joy, knowing Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 22. I want to read verses 23 through 31. Ezekiel chapter 22. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 23. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in the midst, in her midst is like a roaring, lying, tearing, tearing the prey. They've devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I've returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. If I could, again, just take a personal moment just to introduce this passage in saying that as I've come to this uh, book of Ezekiel, for me, it has awakened a number of things. Uh, one is that it's certainly awakened a sense of the seriousness of life. At least life lived under God. As God understands life, the seriousness of, of life, even as we read about the devastation and the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem to see, again, the seriousness of life. And that isn't to say that we're to live under some sort of pall of judgment, unless, of course, you're an unbeliever then you should live under a pall of judgment because that's where you live at this point in life. And certainly for believers, even as we think of those who are not believers, not Christians, and we understand the end to which the road they're on will lead them, it brings a measure of sadness. So we're awakened to the seriousness of life, but I must also say that I've been awakened to the very grace of God. Because as I've, as I've read through Ezekiel and put it in the context of the whole of Scripture, so I've seen not only are we saved from God's wrath, but we're saved by God from God's wrath. And that's amazing to me to think of the fact that we're saved by Him, by God Himself. He is the one who saves us. We're saved from His wrath, but we're saved by Him. Thus, in me at least, that issues forth a measure of gratitude and, and joy and most certainly assurance to think He is the one who has done it. And thus we can trust 
in him and him alone. And we've seen that in the midst of this Advent season, the first Sunday of Advent as we considered the prophets. And, and Jesus, we said, is our prophet. He's the one who righteously brings the very truth of God to us. He's reliable. He's truthful. He can be trusted. Therefore, we, we needn't put our trust in anyone else, any other thing. We can empty our pockets, as we've said, of those idols that were there, and we can trust in Christ and Christ alone because he is the prophet. He is the one who is reliable and brings the very truth of God to us. And then we saw in the second week of Advent that Jesus, in fact, is the king. And thus, he's trustworthy because he's the very one who comes and conquers our hearts. He subdues us. He calls us to himself by this mighty word of life, who, this very one who has authority over life and death. And he calls us to himself, subdues us. He rules us. He defends us. He defeats his enemies and ours so we can trust him and feel secure in the very fact that he is the king. In fact, there was the great problem, the great difficulties in the, in the days of Ezekiel. They had no prophets other than a few who were speaking the truth, and the ones who were speaking the truth, they didn't believe. For you see, it was the role of the prophets in the day of Ezekiel to bring this righteous truth, this right truth of God to the people, but Ezekiel said they simply whitewashed the walls. The walls were very important to the people in Jerusalem because the walls kept out the enemies. And if the walls had cracks in them, it wouldn't do them any good if somebody simply came and painted over them and whitewashed over them and made them look safe and secure if they weren't safe and secure. But that's what the prophets did. The prophets came to them and said, oh, everything's fine. There's peace. And yet God said there was no peace. And so rather than shoring up the walls, the prophets simply covered over them and thus put the people in more danger than they had been before. The kings didn't help either. Because you see, the king in the days of Ezekiel and all of ancient Israel, the kings were called by God to be his representative, to be God's representative of God's own righteous rule among the people. See, both the prophets and the kings represented God. The prophets represented God's truth and reliability and faithfulness. The kings represented God's righteousness. And the kings had the authority over the people to lead them into righteous living. Uh, they were the ones who were to enforce the law, if you will, because they were the king. They had the authority to do that. They're the ones that made sure the people didn't make any unholy alliances with other nations. They were the ones to make sure that the people treated one another fairly and justly and mercifully and kindly and as the law said. And yet the kings themselves, just like the prophets, the kings themselves were corrupt. It was the kings who made the unholy alliances with the other nations and brought the idols of the other nations into Israel, into Jerusalem. It was the kings who extorted the people. It was the kings who took advantage of the poor. It was the kings who, rather than taking care of widows, actually made more widows because of their unrighteous and unholy wars and such. But not only that, the priests were corrupt as well. Now, the priests had a little bit different job, a little bit different task than the prophets and the kings. See, the prophets and the kings represented the righteousness of God to the people. The priests had the unenviable task of representing unrighteous people to a righteous God. It was the job of the priest to intercede on behalf of the people. It was the job of the priest to, to, to act as a go-between, to stand before God and the people, God's righteousness and their unrighteousness. 
How is a priest to do that? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us a wonderful um, a summary of what the priest was to do, especially the high priest, the most important one. In Hebrews chapter 5, for instance, in verse 1, we read this. It says, For every priest, every high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Let me read that again. For every high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. That's what he was to do. And so he was to act on behalf of the people to God. And he did that, his actions, were to do that by offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. Holy God, unholy people. God says, if you want to come into my midst, you must be pure. But you're not pure because you've rebelled against me. And so something now has to, has to take place. Because my law, my righteousness, my holiness has been violated. And God being holy, and you know all this, God being holy had to deal with that unholiness, unrighteousness, that sin. And so the priests would come and they would stand in the presence of God one time a year in this place called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place in the temple. Can only enter once a year, only the high priest. And only after he had made sacrifice for his own sins. If not, he'd be burned up. So the priest would go in the Holy of Holies to represent the people. And he really represented the people in a couple of ways. Turn to Numbers if you're fast. I'm sorry, not Numbers, Exodus. Uh, chapter 28. Now you see, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies each year and he would have to, 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 to put on priestly clothes. And part of the priestly garments that he wear, would wear would be this sort of vest. And on this vest, there would be various stones. And on the shoulders of this vest would be two stones, one on each shoulder. And on each stone would be written the names of the tribes of Israel. Probably six on one and six on the other. And then he would take 12 stones and put them on his breastplate on this vest. And on each stone he would put a name of one of the tribes of Israel. So that we, when he would enter into the Holy of Holies, he would be carrying with him on his very heart the names of the people. So Exodus chapter 28 verse 29 says this. So Aaron, the high priest, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So the job of the priest, you see, was to walk into the holy of holies on behalf of the people and bring them to God's mind. Holy remembrance to the Lord. And they would be on his very heart. And so when the priest, high priest, would walk into the Holy of Holies, it would be like one of the people in Israel walking in, because they would walk in to the presence of God in that high priest. And then, of course, on that day, he would also bring sacrifices for the sins of people. And this great day was called the Day of Atonement. If you think of the word atonement, if I had a whiteboard up here, I would write it out, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, atonement. Meaning, to atone means to bring together, to reconcile, to make at one. So an atonement is really an at one meant, bringing two together. 
And the way that the priest would make atonement would be to bring sacrifices for sins. And you remember, you know this, we talked about this a zillion times. I could give you a multiple choice test and you could do this, but I just like to say this because it's really nice. He took two goats, you remember, and he would take the one goat and he'd kill it. And he would take the blood of that goat and he'd take it into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place that he could only go into once a year and only him. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the top of this little box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the box of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Or really, you want to be technical, and you do, the seat of propitiation. All right? The word propitiation, again, you know this, the word, think about it in your mind, what's it mean? The word propitiation means to satisfy or to exhaust the wrath of God. Because God has a case against us because of our sin, as well he should. And so, in order to satisfy that, in order for justice to be done, then really we must die. But God in his kindness takes a substitute, this goat. And so the blood of the goat sprinkles on the seed of mercy or the seed of propitiation and satisfies, at least at that moment, the wrath of God. And then, you remember, after doing that, nobody gets to see him do that because he's behind the veil. After doing that, he comes out and takes the other goat. And you remember, he leans against this other goat and he confesses the sins of the people on this other goat. Now, I don't know how long that took. I mean, my sins alone would have taken him a while. And if my wife and kids were there, they could have recommended some other things as well. So I don't know how he did that, whether generically, just some big categories of sins, how he did that. But all the people would understand that their sins were being transferred on this goat. And then someone in the community would take this goat and in view of all the people would take it out so they wouldn't see him anymore. And so on the one hand, in the secret of the Holy of Holies, God's wrath was satisfied, their guilt taken care of, forgiveness to be theirs. And they got to see their sins leave. And so he offered sacrifices. And then he would burn incense. And part of it, I think, was just sort of because it probably smelled. But part of it, too, was the incense signified the prayers going up from the high priest to God on behalf of the people. And it always said that it was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. That's how the high priest would represent the people. But in the days of Ezekiel, there was no high priest to be found anywhere, no one to stand. Here's how he puts it in Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You see, his wrath wasn't satisfied. The guilt of the people wasn't dealt with. There was no one to intercede on behalf of the people to God, no priest. Jeremiah was there. Jeremiah was there in Jerusalem, but he wasn't a priest. He was a prophet. He righteously represented God and the truth of God. But there needed to be someone to step up, a priest. But there was no one to do that. And so the people would be destroyed. Fast forward with me to the days of the birth of Jesus. Are you there? Okay number of centuries. I just wanted to give you a minute to do that. Days of the birth of Jesus. If you're walking around Jerusalem and you ask this question, what answer do you think you would get? You ask this question, who among us are the biggest sinners 
in Israel. How do you think somebody off the street would answer that? Now, you and I would probably say the scribes and the Pharisees, because they're always getting nailed by Jesus. But nobody in the days of Jesus other than Jesus would have said the scribes and the Pharisees, because everybody thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the most spiritual people of the land. That's what made it so astounding when Jesus would come against them. So nobody would say the scribes and Pharisees. Everybody thought they were great. Some people might say tax collectors, because the tax collectors were the were the ones who were really traitors against Israel because they were working for the Romans, collecting taxes and extorting money out of, uh, out of the Jewish people. And so some might say them, some might say prostitutes, but somebody along the line and a large number of people on your little survey would say shepherds. Oh, it surprises. Because we rather like shepherds. You read the Bible and we see God as a shepherd caring for the sheep and all of that. But in the days of Jesus, nobody liked shepherds. And the reason nobody liked shepherds is because, well, they hung out with sheep a lot. And in hanging out with sheep a lot, you don't have time to, to really observe all the ceremonial laws that are put before you. You're just stuck with the sheep all the time. And not only that, You can't do all the washings. You can't celebrate the Sabbath because, well, you're working on the Sabbath. And that wasn't allowed. But somebody had to care for the sheep. See? Couldn't find any first-day Adventists to work on this. I mean, it was just, there you go. So you had to be with the sheep. And so, not only that, but the shepherds were often thought of being uh, shysters. They were thought of as being... Uh, being people who, who were liars and thieves even. You remember even the story that Jesus told. He compared himself to the good shepherd, but then he also compared. He also said that he wasn't like the bad shepherds, like the thief, or like the robber, or like the hireling that would run away when the wolves came, when the danger came. So you see, not everybody really liked shepherds. They were pretty lowly in the culture. In fact, if you were in a court of law and the only person who could substantiate your testimony was a shepherd, you'd be out of luck. Because shepherds were not allowed to testify in a court of law. Because nobody believed them. So isn't it interesting that on the day of Jesus' birth, that of all the folks the angels could have come to was this group of outcast, despised shysters called shepherds. Now, some people think since the angels came to these particular shepherds that they weren't bad shepherds. And maybe they weren't. I mean, I don't think shepherds, every one of them, was a bad guy. But we simply don't know. All we know is that the angels went to this particular group of people. And when they did, they announced peace. That is, they announced reconciliation. They said, here's one who has been born, the city of David, Christ the Lord, and he will bring peace. Now, when we think of that, and when it's on Christmas cards, and when it bellows over the loudspeakers at the grocery store, people are thinking peace as in no more war, and people are being nice to each other. And hopefully that happens because of the coming of Christ, and it certainly will on the new earth when all is consummated. But really they were saying he's going to bring peace between human beings and God. He's going to bring reconciliation. There will be atonement. Because you see, this one who's coming is not only the prophet, not only the king, but he's also the high priest. Notice back in Hebrews, in chapter 5, and verse 5. 
says this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him. That is, Christ was appointed by the Father to be our high priest, meaning that he would offer sacrifice and that he would intercede on our behalf. He would go into the very holy of holies on our behalf, representing us amazingly, taking our unrighteousness in himself before God. Now you see, one of the great things about this priestly system in the Old Testament was that the priest was a person. He was a human being. And the notion was that this priest, not speaking of Jesus here as much as I'm speaking of the Old Testament priests, these Old Testament priests would be able to sympathize with the needs of other people. So if you came to me and you said, I'm your high priest and I'm going to go before God today, what do you want me to tell him? I really would only have to say, well, tell him what you're going to tell him, because we're both guys. And whatever's going on in your life is probably going on in my life. You need forgiveness of sins, I need forgiveness of sins. You need help at work, I need help at work. You need help here, I... We need to be provided for, because we're human beings. And so the high priest, the advantage of the high priest is that he would be able to sympathize with our weakness, understand who we are, and go before God on our behalf. And he'd be motivated in a certain way to be able to do that because he would need that too. But on the other hand, the great disadvantage of having a high priest like that is he is just like me. And I have to wonder, well, why in the world will God accept him in his presence, but he won't accept me? Will this high priest really, really be accepted by God? And, and then will he be faithful? Will he really be faithful to go into the presence of God on our behalf and do what God says in order to make this reconciliation, to make this atonement? Can I really trust in this high priest who looked just like me and is just like me? Can I really trust him? And the truth of the matter is that, again, in ancient Israel, the priests were untrustworthy. They were unfaithful. They wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. And so now one comes who is the high priest. And the great news about this high priest is he is faithful. He does do it. He does stand in the very presence of God on our behalf. First, he takes the sacrifice, doesn't he? He takes the sacrifice. In fact, he is the sacrifice. And he gives himself once and for all. In fact, in Hebrews in chapter 9, notice this in verse 24, we read, for Christ has entered not, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ does this. He doesn't go into a little room that people have built called the Holy of Holies. He goes right to the top. He goes right into heaven. He goes right into the throne of God. And he gives his blood on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He says, look, the other priests had to do this every year. They were only in the presence of God on your behalf once a year 
for a short period of time. But here's one who goes there and stays. He doesn't die. He doesn't leave. He doesn't get bored there. He doesn't forget about you and me. But he goes there and we, in him, are interceded for. The sacrifice made once for all. The sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated. It was done. It's over. In fact, any hint at re-sacrificing Christ would simply be blasphemy because it needn't be done. It's done once for all. But notice it says that he's there now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's still there. He remains there. What's he doing? Turn back a page to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. The author of Hebrews says, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, that is, completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is, he's made the sacrifice once, and now he lives in the very presence of God, interceding for us. Now, to intercede means to pray or to plead the case of another. Now, I don't know if you think about this, but I want you to. In fact, I don't want you to ever stop thinking about this. All right? That at every moment in time, Jesus has your name, if you're a believer in him, your name written on his heart, and he's standing before his Father always remembering you. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus is doing right now. And your name is always alive and active in heaven and known because Jesus is there with you in him. We always think of him in us, but remember, we're also in him. And where he is, we are there in the very presence of the Father. And he's praying for us. He's pleading with the Father on our behalf. Now you say, does he really identify with me that closely? I mean, he's the Son of God. I'm just a guy. I'm just a person. And that's the beauty, you see, of the incarnation. That's the greatness of it. That he, being God, didn't leave his deity aside, kept it, but also took upon himself human nature as well so that he could identify perfectly with us. And you say, but but, but, but can he? I mean, I'm a sinful human being. He wasn't. How can he really identify with me and my weakness? And the answer to that, of course, is, oh, he can And the reason that he can is that he knows the misery and the effects of sin way more than any of us will ever know. Because he experienced them all. He experienced loneliness caused by sin like none of us will ever know. He experienced embarrassment because of sin like none of us would ever know. See, when he took our sin upon himself, to bear its burden, to bear its penalty, to bear its judgment. He experienced the misery and the pain and the loneliness and the embarrassment of sin like we will never know. Even in the course of his life, he identified with us. His, his, his temptation, for instance. Satan comes to him, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. 
That's a long time. I mean, I've been fasting since this morning, and I'm hungry. It's a long time, 40 days. Satan comes to him and says, you can turn these stones into bread. And he could have. He could have. But he didn't. Because he wasn't to listen to Satan. He was to listen to his father. And so you see, when we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, do you understand that I have various appetites, various needs that are presently going unmet? I'm hungry. I'm lonely. I'm tired. I'm sick. I'm... Do you understand that, Jesus? He goes, oh yeah, I do. I understand that. I know what it's like to be in physical need. I know what it's like to be in emotional need and only be able to trust in the word of God. I know what that's like. Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, hey, jump. And Jesus said, no. Satan said, well, if you jump, you know, angels will come and gather around you and help you. They probably would have. Jesus said, no, I mustn't test God, meaning when we pray and we say, Jesus, do you understand what it's like to wonder, to really want a sign from God to say yes, to say yes, I really love you, yes, you belong to me, yes, I'm with you. We want to see something tangible. If only we could jump and God would catch us. Do you understand that? Jesus goes, oh, yes, I understand that. I know what that's like. I've experienced that. Satan takes him out and says, you know, You can have all these nations of the world if you just follow me, bow down and worship me. And of course, that was a lie because the nations of the world aren't Satan's to give. But but, but, but Jesus didn't buy the lie, nor did he buy it because to do that would mean he would have circumvented the cross to get the nations of the world. He had to go through the cross to get the nations of the world. And we pray, oh, Jesus, do you understand what it's like to be humbled for the sake of the gospel? He says, yes. Do you understand what it's like To have to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, Jesus says, yes, I know what that's like. So you see, he empathizes, he sympathizes with us perfectly. And so there he is, the one who loves us, the one who never gets bored with us, the one who never fails, the one who always cares. If you read through the New Testament and you want to find one attribute of Jesus that seems to point out more than others, Oh, I think we'd probably say love, but I would really pick the word compassion. Every time you turn around, you find Jesus moved by someone's misery, moved by someone's difficulty. He sees a leper, he has compassion, he touches him. He sees a blind man, he has compassion, he heals him. He sees hungry people, he has compassion, he feeds them. He sees people harassed and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion upon them. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he sighs so deeply that you know This man cares about his friend. He goes and he looks over Jerusalem and he sees the misery that they're in and he weeps and you go, this one cares about them. And so you see, if there's anything about Jesus, this very one, he has compassion for us and there he is in the presence of God with our name written on his heart, bringing our remembrance to the Father. Do you think about that? You say, well, what's he pray? Well, quickly, turn John chapter 17. This is at least what he prays. Because this is what he prayed. He had an opportunity to pray for us before his father. This prayer in John 17. It's a great one. I won't go through it in great detail. I preached once, I think. I think there are 17 sermons or 18 sermons on John chapter 17 somewhere in the archives. Back when I was young. 
knew so much more. But this is Jesus' prayer. And he's praying for those who believe in him, for those he's had authority to bring into the kingdom. That's in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give him eternal life to all those you have given to, to him. And he prays for us as well. Verse 20, it says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So he's praying for believers. He's praying for his own people here. And what's he pray? First, he prays for our protection from Satan. Verses 11 and 12. He says, basically, I can't take them out of the world right now, Father. So protect them. Satan's going to come against them. Satan and all his demons in the world. And even their flesh is going to come against them. So protect them against that. You understand that any one moment in time, you're utterly, as a believer in Christ, safe from Satan. Because Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. Do you understand that Satan can't eat our lunch. That he can't destroy us. Because we're as safe against Satan as we can possibly be. So long as Jesus stays alive and continues to intercede on our behalf. And he lives eternally to intercede for us according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, he's going to keep us safe by sanctifying us. In verse 17, that is, by increasingly making us holy, by setting us apart to be his, and to increase our holiness. That there's no way we're going to be able to fall out of this, because he says, Jesus has sanctified them by the truth. So you know, every day, as Jesus is praying for us, interceding for us before the Father, keep them safe from Satan, and also sanctify them by your truth. Have your very word come and change them, work in them, make them holy. He prays that we have joy, verse 13, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So every day, no matter what you're going through, please understand, have this come to mind at times of great difficulty. Satan can't get me because Jesus is interceding for me. I can be holy because Jesus is interceding for me. And I can have joy because Jesus is interceding. That's what he's praying for me right now because he understands my circumstance and he understands that the human condition is such that I'm going to be utterly unjoyful at this moment in time. So he's praying that I be filled with joy. Not only that, he's praying for uh, our unity. Verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. In other words, since Jesus is praying, he's interceding, what's he interceding for? He's interceding that there will always be a people on the face of the earth who believe the gospel, that we're unified with those who have gone before us, that we're unified with Peter and James and John and Chrysostom and Tertullian and Origen and, and Wesley and Calvin and Luther and everybody who believes. That will always be. We don't have to worry about that. Because Jesus is interceding for his people, that we're united together, one generation to another. Not only that, verse 24, he says this. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's saying, listen, every day, oh, Father, I want Bill to be with me. I want him to see my glory. And I'm safe, you see. 
as long as Jesus stays alive, and as long as he continues to care for me, and as long as he continues to intercede on my behalf, which he is guaranteed to do. Don't ever let that leave your mind. You know why that third candle over there is pink? And the others are purple? Little Advent quiz. Well, the reason, purple, you see, is the purple of royalty, so it's that time of year in the liturgical color scheme. But somebody along the centuries, threw in a pink one. Actually, it's supposed to be rose-colored. I'm sure it is. And you know why? It's to startle us on this Sunday of Advent into joy. I bring you glad tidings of great joy. What's the great joy? The great joy that peace is coming. Peace, yes, between us and God. How could that be? Because one who's coming is the high priest. And he's going to represent us. All these other priests are unfaithful. All these other priests die. All these other priests don't really care about us. All these other priests really don't take care of their job the way they're supposed to. All these other priests, on a best year scenario, can stand in the presence of God on our behalf for a few minutes, sprinkling blood with our name and a stone on their chest. But there's one coming who loves us, who cares for us, who satisfies the wrath of God completely and wholly by his one holy sacrifice and then lives forever to stand always, every minute, all the time in the presence of God with our name upon his heart, interceding for us, taking before the Father every need that we have. And you know, if that doesn't bring you joy, then you don't get any. That's all there is to it. Because that, you see, is supposed to thrill our souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus, who's right there. It's amazing. He's right there in the heavenly places with our name upon his lips. Father, even as we pray our needs, as he hears them, as he knows our very hearts, Father, we trust that he is interceding perfectly on our behalf and that we're perfectly safe because of what he does. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you live and continue to live to intercede for us and we can be safe For you are the glorious one, and we need you, for you are the one who has and must save us. And we know that because you're alive and because we we know because you continue to intercede for us that that we are saved completely to the uttermost, and we can live in that assurance. And for that we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Before uh, you stand for the benediction, I have the privilege of introducing a number of uh, folks who have joined with us uh, recently. We introduced some the first service, have others second service, a few couldn't be here with us today. But um, 
We believe joining the church in a formal way is an important thing to do because it enables you to be numbered with the people of God. As the church, we can't put the holy stamp of approval on you and say, yes, we know you're a believer because we can't look into your heart, but we can encourage you to have a, a proper, right profession of faith. And so we want to hear people's professions of faith and therefore give an opportunity for people to make a public profession of faith so that they can be numbered with other believers. And so, uh, through our particular process uh, that you know, uh, many have been doing that and we're grateful. So I'd like to introduce these folks and as I read your name, if you could come up and just stand up here in front of me to my left and probably have to spill over to my right a bit. Uh, after that, I want to have them uh, affirm their faith and then we shall greet them. So please, as I read off your name, please come. Uh, Mimi Urish, Sandra Reed, Rebecca McClelland, Jonathan and Christina Marburger, Brian and Jennifer Clam, Zachary Kidwell, Mark and Ann Jarbo, John Fales, Luann Coates, Jeff and Rebecca Burgess, Ray and Paige Buckingham, Mark and Brenda Brown, Ryan and Kelly Brittingham, Annette Marie Baldwin. And if there's anybody else who had planned to join with us today and I didn't read your name, it's a clerical error, not a sign from God, so you just come to. <laughs> We've made those mistakes before. Now, as these folks come, I have five questions for them. You've seen us do this before, but these are important. The first three enable them to share their profession of faith, which is very important to be able to do in a setting like this. Because when we say we believe in Jesus in here, people smile, and that feels really good. When we walk out those doors and we say we believe in Jesus, people don't always smile. And so it's good to have this affirmation and this support to carry us out there. The last two questions simply deal with our um, commitment to the body of Christ, to the church, which is a biblical thing, and so we ask that as well. So here are the questions. Please respond. First this, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Do you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Do you? And do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you? Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and its ministry to others, do you? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, to the spiritual oversight of this church session, and do you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church, do you? Let me ask you all to stay right there and ask you all to stand. And I'm going to pronounce the benediction, and after which we'll give the response. And then, if you would, rather than everybody just sort of going that way, because it's just cold and messy outside anyway, <laughs> rather than going that way, come this way, if you will, if you have an opportunity, and just say hi, just to greet these folks and walk up and down. It'll be messy, but you know, relationships are messy. And so, just come and say hello and uh, greet each other. The response... Uh, I remind you before that, remember our program tonight, 7 o'clock, kids, important, etch on your mind. The response to the benediction is our Advent response, Christ has come, Christ is coming again.
Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which was well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.